Hello, and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I am speaking today, the Awabakal people, and to pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Today's guest, Chris Mansell, is one of Australia's notable powerhouses in the poetry world. Chris was a founder of Five Islands Press and now runs Press Press, an independent publishing house she founded in 2002. Chris has had over a dozen of her own books of poetry published, as well as artist books, CDs, a collection of short fictions, even a children's book. Her extensive body of work has been translated into many languages and won many prizes, including the Queensland Premier's Literary Award for Poetry and the Mianjin Dorothy Porter Poetry Prize. Her latest book is 101 Quads, published by Punter and Whiteman, Thorny Devil Press, in 2020, and also Fox Line, which was also published in 2020 by Flying Island Books, and which Chris is here today to talk about. Chris Mansell, welcome. Oh, hello. Lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you. Um, can I just ask you to open the show with a poem? Do you have any preferences? I'm happy for you to choose, but if you'd like me to choose, um, you could just start with the first poem in the book, Night Fox. Well, there you go. That's what I was going to choose. So we're in a board here. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. So it's the very first um, time we meet either the man or the fox, who are the main protagonists in the book, Night Fox. We're driving out through the grey grasses and the grey air of dusk, the sheep grey as the grey dust, then the darker grey of night settling on the skin and the grit in our hair. In the night, the shim of country slips slim and the blank full of sex and space strokes the skin like a lover. The full dark stings the air with lanolin, ammonia, sheep shit. And here, the dim movements of beasts, we drive up slowly, unlit, the sniper leaning on the cabin of the ute, the spotlight ready, and then our assault of light and a paddock of green sparks, the eyes of sheep, and amid them, one pair, red, the fox, not ashamed to look to the light. Mm. So I, I feel like this poem really sets up um, the whole of the book and also the human-animal connection. Um, mm. There's a, a real sense to me of a kind of simultaneous kinship and otherness. You know, that it's a real tension that's throughout the book. Sure, I think um, there's a sort of progression that goes through the book as they as we discover them, and they, they talk to each other, they talk themselves, they have sort of little monologues off to the side. Um, but by the end of the book, I think they're aliens, both, you know, the white protagonist and um, the other alien, the father, um, who also dreams of going back to her, sort of, as it were. So um, they both realise they don't really belong, you know, in an odd sort of way, but they've got nowhere else to go. You know, this is where they belong and they don't belong at the same time. And I think that's a, um, in this country. Um, so, you know, that progression sort of sneaks up on you until you get to the last poem where it's more or less explicit. Um, but I don't try to bang the drum too loudly, if you know what I mean. It's not a polemical book in that way. It's just two creatures 
interacting with each other and the landscape and trying to figure each other out um, because from their own points of view, they're both um, pure, true individuals, you know. Mm. Yes, I, I feel like also there's a almost like a secondary story. Um, there's the, the, the characters, obviously. It's a, it, it is a, sh- a story in itself, these characters encountering each other and, and their kind of perpetual dance. Um, but there's also another story that is purely rhythmic to me. And, and I, I feel that in this poem as well, the whole sensuality of it and the, the alliteration and the way in which it sounds mm. is almost a, it's, its own thing. Oh yeah, a poem, a poem in the mouth. I think um, this this book is really a poem in the mouth. Whereas God's got a lot of that sensuality too, but it's sensuality for the eye often. But um, this one definitely for the mouth. All except two poems, uh, tercets, which is a lovely sort of form. I really like tercets. You know, the three lines, quite short, most of them, actually all of them, um, and it gives a sort of um, breath and rhythm to the poems, it sort of slows them down a bit and allows you to fondle the words in your mouth, as it were. Um, and the ones that are um, only two lines are sort of related. Um, and for some reason, that was necessary. I don't know why. <laughs> like, Instinct. Yeah, apparently. But when I read it through just prior to this, I thought, oh, I see, they're actually related. She says, um, you know, finding out about her own work for the, for the first time. It's always the way, though, I think um, I think you probably agree that you can um, write things and then because you're writing from your gut and, and your intuition and a whole lot of other things and you read it later and you think, oh, oh, that's what I meant. Yes, I did mean that. <laughs> um, like um, Erica John said, you know, I'm, um, how do I know what I think until I see what I write? Yes. For sure. Um, so how did the book come together as a collection? I mean, did you begin by just working with this image that you came across and, and writing poems, or did you actually decide that there was a book straight off? Um, I was very affected by seeing about 200 foxes strung up by their back legs, um, head down, scalped um, along the road, I was fascinated with them, even though they were all dead. Um, they're also extremely beautiful. It was one of those sort of luminescent days and the paddocks were sort of super green and the sky super blue and these red foxes all along the, the uh, fence, you know, the wire fence, um, and they were just beautiful. And um, my partner and I got out and unfortunately he went to the old end and I went to the new end to have a look at them. And of course, the old end stank, whereas I was up the new end and that was fine. And so I was totally fascinated and took lots of pictures and thought about how calm they were there. Now, in real life, those foxes were, I no doubt, poisoned. They didn't show any sign of shooting or trapping. Um, and when I did research on 1080, which is what is usually used, it's a very, very cruel uh, thing. And I didn't want poison. I wanted the clear honesty of the shotgun. It was a shot, but not a shotgun, a, sh- a rifle. Um, and so I wanted to write about that. And then as I started to write, I realized, oh, this is this is actually a book. And then I started to compose it as a as a book. Um, you know, one or two poems and then you think, yeah, oh, but I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And um, the characters came about. 
interestingly, the man, I didn't know anything about. I didn't know anything about. And I Googled it and carried on, couldn't find anything. But when I was nearly the end of the book, I Googled again. And meanwhile, somebody in the local paper had written up a story about the fox. They didn't call it the fox line, I did, about this um, bunch of dead foxes and the man who um, had shot uh, poisoned them. And it wasn't at all like the person that I'd, I'd pitch you. He seemed to be quite a genial man who just, you know, didn't want his stock being killed. You know, he wasn't at all the, the lonely sort of figure on the horizon with a rifle. But I kept my man. He was more interesting in a way. Because he was solitary, more like her, the fox. Um, no, foxes aren't solitary, but she always appears as solitary. Um, so it's better to have the two solitary um, characters. Yes, although she speaks for the whole of her species, doesn't she? Whereas he seems to speak only for himself. Yeah, he does. Um, and she, she's like a leader. Um, depend, uh, research I did show that the, it depends on what the food supply is and everything about how foxes arrange themselves. And But, you know, she's obviously a leader. She's obviously an alpha female. And I kept her as a female to get that opposition to the man again, not because she displays particularly sort of feminine qualities, but because I wanted them exactly opposite. Um, yes, he, he's in a way more dissatisfied and introspective um, because he's got more control over the landscape really. He divides it up and he's on the hunt and, and they're just trying to live. She doesn't really understand him very well. He thinks he understands more than she does. Mm. Yes, I, I feel like, um, and maybe, you know, the, the, the characters are themselves for sure. There's, there's no, um, there's not really an allegorical nature, as you, you've already said. Mm -hmm. But I also feel that they do, maybe it's just in my reading, but I feel that they also represent other things, um, as well as being themselves. Mm. So, you know, I, maybe it's just the zeitgeist. <laughs> um, but you know, I felt this whole notion of, of a dialectic going on between them that was broader than these individual characters, you know, yin mm. yang, man versus nature, male and female, uh, all of those things seem to be working in conjunction with the actual characters. Oh, yeah, I've definitely had that sort of idea in mind. And when she tries to imagine herself back, you know, on the, you know, in the icy, icy um, European landscape um, where, you know, she thinks, oh, that's where I belong. Um, she, she really is like an archetypal figure there. She, she's like trying to think herself back into myth. She tries also to think of herself as a flying fox, you know, like she, she's constantly trying to place herself in a bigger place. And when, by the time you get to the end, I think they're both in a different place. I certainly feel a lot of sympathy for the man, mm. even though he's not sympathetically portrayed, but, but I feel he's, he's sort of like me and the, and the fox is sort of like me as well, but, but she's more inquiring than the man he, he just knows that he's in the wrong place and he can't quite put his finger on it, um, where she sort of understands more, I think. Yes, he's kind of trapped in this role of the hunter, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've seen that in, um, you know, I've known a lot of country boys and, um, you know, they go for a walk with a gun. You know, when they, when they want to be left alone, um, they, you know, they're going to shoot rabbits or something ostensibly. 
and they go for a walk with a gun. It's not a violent thing. They just, it's an excuse. Don't bother me. I'm doing something. Look at me doing something. I'm taking a gun. Um, and that to me was a very sort of potent image of that, the man with the gun. And that first poem actually recounts an experience where I did go um, fox shooting um, with um, somebody. I did go fox shooting with somebody and, um, you know, that was what I saw. Um, and it, it um, was a very powerful thing for me, you know, watching all those green eyes and then the red eyes there, just standing amid the sheep. Best place to hide, of course, unless you've got a light. Yeah. Yeah. What, what a fascinating thing to do. Um, did you do the, was that in conjunction with writing the book or was that just completely separate? Oh, no, that was like decades earlier, but it, oh. it stuck with me because the fox was so smart that you, it thought it was physically hiding from, from the sheep, but of course they couldn't be shot. They couldn't shoot the fox in that situation because they'd shoot the sheep. Because, you know, it's a tiny, you're in the dark and it's this tiny pair of red eyes. You have to be a very, very good shot to get that fox there. Um, you know, it was a really clever fox. And I just remember the smells and the, you know, the various, you know, the lanolin, the, the ammonia, you know, all of those things that are in the poem. I remember that really strongly. And yet I was probably 17 when, well, 16, when um, I was on the back of that ute. Um, Funny, isn't that how poetry gets dragged? You know, you drag everything into a poem. Mm. Yes, it's it's timeless in that way. Um, so the fox line sequence itself kind of stands out. I mean, I love all the poems in, in the book. Um, but the fox line sequence really um, sits as kind of the heart of the book. Yeah. Did, did that um, exist separately from the rest? No, I wrote it sort of all together. Like I didn't send anything out or, um, you know, flog them around um you know I just wrote the book as a book after the first couple and I don't even remember which ones I wrote first I think probably Night Fox was one of the ones I wrote first mm. um, um but then you know the, the fox line was such a powerful image and experience even though look I was probably there for half an hour and because my partner was saying these things stick they're making me vomit you know <laughs> I was saying, no, another photograph, another photograph. But it was such a potent sort of thing, these dead foxes, you know, off to infinity. There's, I've actually posted a picture on the net um, of those things. But, of course, you've got to be a bit careful because people get terribly upset um, for good reason. Um, so can, but, can I ask you to just read the first one, the, just um, the first poem in the fox line sequence? Sure. I'll just flip to it. It's 14. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I should mention too, there's marginalia all the way through the um, book, which sort of comments on in a very old fashioned way about um, what's happening or, you know, that who's speaking or adds a little comment. Um, but I don't ever read those out because they get in the way. That's, that's a page thing. The, the, I'll just say that the first piece of marginalia that goes there is, um, and then the killed foxes are strung up on the wire fence. So that, associates you know what's happening um number one the day the night if you knew where his house was you'd never see him he's a lonely hunter his heart is buried out the back near the wood pile because there are cold winters here and there are cracks in the walls and at some point near infinity there is a slit too slim to slip a scalpel in where the horizon meets the sky and the road is a point 
singular. That's where his house is. Somewhere there, the foxlawn man sharpens his best knife. He himself has rusted, become strange. He can't see it. No mirrors to look at him and no one speaks. Everything is still. There is no wind. The sky stays static. His hands are, as they always have been, competent and weirdly precise. The knife slurries on the oiled stone and the rough paddocks sing. There is amnesia in the hills, stories missing all through here. He used to bait the ground each time differently because they learnt those red devils, those lamb-eating bastards, those killers, those monsters bigger than the moon, walking with soft intent like dreams and shadow selves. That red incisive gave the un gaze, the unspoken, speechless quiet of their hunt. Too clever now. He walks by night, imitating sounds of injured birds. The silent foxes come. He sees their red-lit eyes. They never see the gun. This is the man standing in the grasses. He is the fox, now mute as a stave. Hmm. So you can see I'm talking about, you know, stories being missing, um, all our history being obliterated. And by our, I mean Australian, deep Australian history being, you know, most of it's obliterated, we don't know any of it, which is a deep, deep shame to us, I think. But he, he and the fox are one, you know, at this point, you know, the hunter and the hunted. And, of course, you would have picked up, you know, the heart is a lonely hunter. Um, mm. um, because that's such a beautiful title, how could you not steal that? <laughs> Yes, lovely, lovely. And um, I really, I, I love the way the tercets work. Um, they almost provide a kind of, they're sort of minimalist in their way. And so you really manage with very few words to pull in all of these additional meanings, um, almost as if they were like individual haiku. I know they're not, they're not syllabic haiku and they're not haiku at all. But there is a, there is that kind of almost delicacy that you get with haiku that forces the reader to just kind of visualize and stop and think and, and you know, just pause with each tercet. Yeah, I think that's a quality of the tall, thin poem as well. And, and you could see these as tall, thin poems just divided into threes. Um, you know, that slow, you know, each line is a breath. So that slow um, way of getting through, you know, a, a line, you know, You've only got a few words. You might only have six or seven words on that line, less, um, fewer, I should say. Um, so it's going to be slow. So that that automatically makes you in a more contemplative sort of way of um, of reading the poem. I think um, I've become more and more enamoured of the short line as I've got older and older. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> slower and slower, perhaps. Well, also it allows, I guess, some space for the reader to. To, to join, kind of join in the, the creative process. That's a very nice thing of you to say. I would hope so. Mm. I would hope so. I mean, that's, you know, poetry is always a bit of a collaboration, isn't it? Mm, I think so. Um, so let, let's talk about the side, the sideline voices or the, you know, the voices um, or that voice that is kind of all the way through the book, um, which you don't read when you read out loud, but it, oh, yeah. it's kind of there almost as a, a kind of running commentary. Yeah. On what you're seeing. Yes. Um, I, I really like the idea of marginalia. I always like those books um, 
that you would get and they'd, they'd have a little abstract of, of you know, it'd be prose, it'd be a novel or something, you know, and uh, there'd be a little abstract of, of what goes on, you know, in that chapter um, beforehand or um, other books where there'd be old books again, where there'd be uh, like marginal notes so you could find your way through. Um, and I think they're a very sort of useful thing because it's almost like poets saying, oh, and by the way, <laughs> like, um, you know, and sometimes they're more poetic, like, you know, outside the world is large. I mean, that's not an instruction to the reader. That's like a whole another little bit of poetry stuff on the side, whereas other times it's more, um, you know, who is speaking, um, you know, or some comment like the man is indeed lonely here. Um, I had a huge amount of trouble getting them in the right spot. Uh, not me when I first did it because it's easy with your own stuff, but four types that it never went insane. Um, but they're very carefully placed so that they're in exactly the right position. Um, they're not sort of randomly placed. Um, and sometimes you really need it in the FAQ section in Foxline, for example, you really need a bit of guidance about who is speaking um, because they're sort of speaking, they're both speaking and they're, they're having a more or less a conversation. Um, so, you know, it really helps you there. <laughs> It almost feels in some instances, in some instances, you're absolutely right. It's poetic and it, um, it, it adds a, a, almost like an additional little poem in the corner. Yeah. But um, in some instances, it almost feels like, you know, when you pick up a book from the library and it's got reader notes in the side. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't you love those? I love them. I do. I, I do. Um, I mean, they're cringeworthy when they're your own from, <laughs> from 30 years ago. But yeah, I, I, I really enjoy seeing them. And, and it almost feels like um, you, you're gaining an insight that you're not meant to have. It's a little bit oh. advantage. Oh, I see that. They're sort of like reading, as you say, a reader's notes on the side. I've got to tell you, I've got a copy of Ulysses that I got when I was 15 or so, and I wrote notes on the side of that. Can you imagine? I can, because I also have a copy of Ulysses with notes. <laughs> and some of them are so embarrassing. They're like, yes, we're the next one. <laughs> and and um, David Malouf was my lecturer for Lowell at the university, and he lectures very quickly. And so you didn't take notes, you wrote on your copy. Um, and the, you know, he was a very good lecturer with, with fabulous insights and, you know, what a privilege. Um, but I found that I'd written down things like, you know, you know, there is a bucket or something, you know, like, like, duh, that says, you know, like, but you just write down everything because you didn't want to miss anything. And so I'd actually treasure those, those copies. Yes, it's almost a little historic, a piece of history itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he was so good. Yeah. Yes. So look, I, I want I want to get an at least another poem in there, if not two. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite poem in the book, and I, I really don't even know why this is my favorite, um, <laughs> but it does kind of feel to me a little bit like the turning point uh, in the book, uh, where the characters suddenly, um, I don't know, begin their arc, um, and that is when. Oh. Right after oh. the sequence. That's an interesting choice. What page is it on? Forty-three. Forty-three. Thank you. Um, yes, that's sort of. It's a sort of meditation aside, really, from a lot of the other things that are there. Um, so it's an interesting choice. When? When do you admit that it's not enough? When the vines grow in? When the barbarians are at the gate? When you finally see the fox eye and know that it's your own, hunted and not quite the thing desired? 
the marginal beast because of not who, but what you are. When do you admit that after all you care and standing in the shadows ready for the kill is not enough? When do you admit desire, dense agency, allow stark wonder is not a sin? When do you greet the barbarians because you are one of them, the destroyers, the ones with teeth and appetites for war? When do you admit this vulpine thing walking on quiet pores in your spine, a hypodermic rage. When do you admit to that? Yes, maybe it's, maybe I'm, I'm trying to work out um, straight on the back of your reading why it's my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is sort of both of them. You're not quite sure who's speaking there because it says vulpine thing, but, you know, it's sort of like the man is also afraid that he is the vulpine thing you know he's walking as well through the landscape though it sort of suggests that it's her but could be either and of course you know like the um you know it refers to kafafi khan waiting for the barbarians mm -hmm. um you know that you need the barbarians in order to have civilization but of course this this character this amalgam character is worried about that and worried about the fact that maybe they are the barbarians. In fact, I can't work out where they sit. Um, I feel almost like it's a point in the book where we realize, or certainly when I'm reading it, I, it gives me a bit of a shiver because I realize that um, I too <laughs> am the barbarian. You know, yeah. It brings the reader in in that sense. And, and you think about how, you know, how and what we're doing to the world. And I really feel that it draws the reader in and says, um, when, when do you admit it, reader? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't ever sort of dare to ask a reader that, but I was certainly asking myself that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there comes a time, isn't it, when one is infinitely culpable, really, being in a rich country. You know, like um, I was talking to friends about, you know, the level of slavery that's embodied in many of our products. Uh, we're unaware of it, uh, actual slavery or so close to it. And and you realise you're culpable. You just, you can't help it. Yes. Like. You know, you buy a shirt and you're culpable. You buy a computer and you're culpable. Um, it, unless you go and live in a paddock somewhere and, you know, grow pumpkins for a living, um, you know, well, grow your own culpable via privilege as well. So there's, you know, there's, exactly. there's so much that we're, we're culpable for. And, and I guess this poem in such a beautiful and not at all didactic or, um, you know, very subtle way, um, really seems to bring that to the fore that we're all standing here with our, you know, with our gum. We are, I think. We are. Mm. And, and when we're not doing that, we're ripping things apart with our teeth. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So beautiful and, and terrible at the same time, which is, uh, I guess, a, a recurring theme in the book. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I love those foxes. Mm. And, and, you know, I've had chickens so um, <laughs> that have been taken by foxes and they are beautiful and terrible. Oh, they, they absolutely are. They're, I mean, they're, they're physically very beautiful mm. and they're very, very clever um, mm. and they can survive in all sorts of ways and um, they can't be easily tricked. You know, they are quite foxy. Mm. Um, you know, the, the thing about laying the baits differently is true and also the, the making the sound like the injured bird there's a sort of special whistle where, you know, it sounds like a duck in, you know, mortal danger. And so the fox will come out looking for it. I think they learn about that pretty quickly as well. Mm. But, um, 
they had a smell to foxes that didn't get in there. I wanted to put it in that, that um, you know, experienced farmers can smell the foxes. Um, and of course, you think the foxes are the ones who are smelling, but the farmers can too. I've been told, don't know, never experienced it. So the fox is not ordinary and amazes even the air. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That is true. Yeah. That's my, um, that's your little aside. And that's my intro to um, asking you to maybe if we can sneak in one more poem, which is Defining Fox, which has that aside. Oh, Defining Fox. 75. Okay. 75. Thank you. Thank you for that. Because I've got all sorts of weird stuff, Marky. I, I wondered what they thought about Flying Fox. And, um, you know, I, I came across a dead flying fox. I, I, I do like live animals as well, but I happened to come across a dead flying fox in, of all places, Queen uh, Cayman Street, Redfin. And it also is a very beautiful thing. And as a child or so, I used to live in Papua New Guinea and they'd sell flying foxes strapped live, strapped to sticks, you know, for, for dinner, you know, for meat. And these poor things would be wide-eyed and strapped to sticks, you know, and they were so beautiful because they've got lovely fur and they've got a sort of ginger fur on their front. I'm pointing it out for you. Um, <laughs> so I, I really did. Um, it's 75, Defining Fox. Yes. <clears throat> Does the fox say, it is very difficult to be ordinary? Does she say, it's also hard to be that line and reach of perfect foxiness, the orange and the white? the black and the round eye, to see the sharps and angles in the air and to say, stay so louche to amaze in that ordinary way that pulls the eye and makes you want to keep your child close to your side. I, I thought we were going to do the one about the flying foxes, but that's a different one. Yes. And, and yet somehow you do define foxes in that, um, in that poem in, in a way. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm sorry, I thought I just raved on about flying foxes and had nothing to do with flying foxes. Um, <laughs> but, but I do love them as well, so there you go. Wait, which is the flying fox poem? Because I can get you to read that one too. Oh, oh where is fox it? Fox and fly? Probably, What's a, where's that? 62. That sounds about right. Fox and fly. 62, okay. my not, goodness. It's not. Oh, it's not. Uh, this is terrible. I have a huge trouble. You know what it's like? You fly, um, oh, here we are, the other fox. Okay. The other fox. It is feared because all flying things are feared and flying things with teeth are doubly feared. That leathery cape, those elbow claws, that night flying up to no goodness. It's only because that high darkness is higher at dusk. It's only because their sweet faces have eyes as big as innocence. We let them go. They are an awkward country, the upside downness that, after all, is not a joke. This other fox we fear will bite us, eats only our flowers and fruits. We know at any time it could swing back to myth and come to savage us before the day dawned on us. And yet they're so sweet. Yes. <laughs> they are so sweet. Mm. Oh, look, I, I, I just love this book. Um, and uh, thank you. You know, it repays a continual dipping in, which is um, it's just a delight. 
But it would be remiss of me, I think, mm-hmm. not to let you at least get in a quick promo for one, 101 quads. Oh, well, so just a very quick one. Um, <laughs> well, you you're, very, you're very generous. 101 quads is about as dif- different to Fox Iron as you could possibly imagine. It's um, 101 um, severely restricted, formally distinct um, geometric poems. Um, there's only a strict set number of characters in each poem. And within them, they also, they're, they're mainly visual, but in, within them, they also have a red sound poem, which you can choose to read as well. So um, that, that was uh, a really um, good thing. I mean, it came out of the uh, having a typewriter and mucking about with a typewriter. And um, I only did one on the typewriter. My typing was hideous. So um, they're completely different, but they're also similar in that they're sensual poems, most of them. Um, You know, the language in the mouth is pretty important. The language on the page is pretty important. Mm. I mean, all poetry is related, as you know. Um, But I, I, you know, I I do like both of them, even though they're they're weird sisters in more ways than one. (laughs) Well, fun to have two different books to promote at the same time as well that are so different. Yeah, yeah. And look, I really appreciate your generosity um, to Foxline. You know, it's good to have a reader who's so appreciative and generous. It's my pleasure. It's a great joy of reading is being able to just, um, you know, kind of indulge myself and take time out <laughs> of something. Because, we, you know, the, the world we live in is fast and, um, and we're constantly being told to hurry up. So I, I try and, you know, it's, I think it's a, a privilege and a, a joy to be able to, to actually slow down. Yeah, and we really need poetry in our lives. We, we should read, you know, at least one poem a day, probably more, but at least one. Yes, and slowly and engage with it, I think. Yeah, we're very impatient, though, with poems sometimes. I've thrown more poetry books across the room than terrible novels, um, and it's not necessarily because they're terrible books. It's just because of impatience or something. We have very intimate connection with poetry, and like lovers, we can get rather cross with them, the small things. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. I think we're, we're uh, just about out of time. Um, but just let us know where's the best place for listeners to find out more about your work and how to get hold of it. Oh, well, they can go to my site um, or to my blog or they could go to Flying Islands. Probably my site is best. I shall put up some stuff about Foxline, um, including a link to your fabulous review. Um, so that's probably the best. So it's easy. You can just Google me, Chris Mansell Poet, and you'll get to me. Okay, so. wonderful. And and I noticed that um, Jean Kent's, uh, just, just today, Jean Kent's um, launch speech went up, and, and that is also exquisite. So, Oh, she's so good. She is so good. I've known Jean for decades, and she is such a s- smart, insightful person. But also she's extremely generous. She's a very kind person as well. And... Um, you know, that's the sort of reader you want, isn't it? <laughs> Always. So you'll have to put up a link to that too. So people. I will. I, I shall. I Wonderful. Should. Well, that's thank all we have much. time for, Chris, but thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>